Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fast Talk. I am managing editor Chris Case, here along with my esteemed colleague and co-host, Coach Trevor Connor. Brr, it is cold outside. It is officially winter. If you live anywhere in the U.S., particularly in New England right now, boy, do we have the perfect podcast for you. You might be looking out your window as we speak and seeing the Arctic conditions out there, wondering, how am I going to train in this? Well, this podcast is going to help. Fortunately, Trevor and I are a couple guys who hail from the Northeast and have spent many hours battling the cold to ride our bikes. We're going to share our experiences and knowledge training during the frigid months to help you improve training in the cold for yourself. In fact, you know, one of us may not have the best sense of when to stay inside and keep warm. And the hint here is that he's Canadian and he talks a little bit funny. So today we'll tackle the following topics. How does training in the cold affect your body, and is there anything you need to do differently to prepare? We'll offer a lot of tips and tricks on how to set up your gear, what to do out on the road when the thermometer is reading in the single digits, and how to eat and drink. It's all about the whiskey, in fact. Mm, maybe not. Finally, when it just gets too cold or too dark, or too icy outside, we'll address alternative workouts, including the right balance of trainer time to still have you ready for that first race in March. So those are the things we will tackle. What we won't tackle in this episode is how to dress warmly. We've done that in a previous episode of the podcast, episode seven. So please refer back to that episode for more details on how to dress warmly. There's a lot of different opinions out there on what works and what doesn't, so we've interviewed a host of guests to give you all the angles. Those guests include, first, we have Stephen Chung, a great friend of the Fast Talk podcast, science writer for Pez Cycling, who recently published the book Cycling Science, and he's also worked with the Exert training system. We'll also hear from Dr. Inigo San Milan, another great friend of the Fast Talk podcast and resident genius at the University of Colorado Sports Medicine and Performance Center. We'll also hear from former professional roadie Tim Johnson, probably best known for his cyclocross antics. He's three-time national champion in the discipline, but maybe he should really be known for being married to Lynn Bissett, a lovely Canadian Finally, we'll hear from Trek Segafredo Pro, Kiel Reinen, who spent much time training in Colorado and Washington State when he's not living the high life in Sicily or Mallorca or all those other lovely sunny places that professionals get to train in. Everyone has different opinions about how to deal with the cold and our guests are really no exception. You'll hear some conflicting opinions between what we say and what they have to say. All we suggest is that you go out and try these things for yourself and see what works best for you. With that, stay warm and let's make you fast.
well, it's still good to put all our rides up on Strava. Health IQ is a life insurance company that specializes in healthy, active people like cyclists and runners. They're able to give us favorable rates for life insurance, and they have a special website just for us, Fast Talk listeners. www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk, where listeners of the show can go to get a free quote. While you're there, submit race results, screen grabs of your Strava or MapMyRun account, or other proof that you are indeed a regular cyclist and you'll get a better quote. Well, here we are. Uh, I am sitting in Connecticut. Trevor is up in snowbound Toronto. This is one of our first podcasts where we're in separate locations. I've traveled here back to my parents' home where I grew up uh, for the holiday break. It has been approximately 15 degrees Fahrenheit as a high during the day, which to me is pretty damn cold. Um, it sounded pretty bet, balmy I, there. <laughs> I, be, I bet it's been a little bit colder in, in that place they call Toronto. This week, I think our warmest day has been 10 degrees Fahrenheit. It's been below zero multiple days. So you have a lot of practical experience riding in the cold, and you're a scientist. So, man, we really we nailed it on this one. We've got the expert of riding in the cold, both from the practical point of view and from the nerdy, geeky, Trevor, Connor, I'm a scientist, let's get, make you fast point of view. Oh, we, we've also got the insanity piece that, that I did a, a couple weeks ago, I did three rides in a row that were all five hours when it was below zero Fahrenheit. Man, you so you know you know what kind of, I don't know, it's not torture, it's not necessarily damaging, but th that that is tough. Uh, I'm not tough. I'm, I'm going to go more with insane, but boy, we are going to be talking from experience in this podcast today. Maybe maybe on the, the website for uh, this podcast, we'll put, uh, we have some pictures from that training camp, uh, and you can just see in the pictures how cold it is. I don't know how, but you can see in the air that it is just cold. The lens of the camera was cracking. That's probably why. Or there was <laughs> frost, frost whore on, on all of the uh, metal surfaces. All right. Well, we're going to take all of our personal experience training in the cold, two cold places. So let's, let's turn to the science first, Trevor. Tell us what uh, the science tells us about training in cold weather. We did a podcast about a year ago on the importance of dressing warm, and we did go pretty deep into some of the science of why it's important to keep your muscles warm. So I'm just going to expand a little bit on that. And one of the things that, that I want to start with is this, this really interesting study that I, I read for this podcast. It's uh, from 2016 in a journal I've never heard of called Bone Joint Research, where they used mouse muscle to see the effects of the temperature uh, of the muscle uh, on uh, whether you get any sort of tearing. And the gist of the study was they found that 32 degrees Celsius was a, a breaking point for muscle damage. So meaning that once the muscle temperature was 32 degrees Celsius or below, uh, they saw a much greater degree uh, of tearing in the muscle. Well, um, that's not very cold. No, that's not very cold. As a matter of fact, your muscle can hit that temperature in, in, in ambient temperatures. And actually, what was surprising is they found there was no difference between the muscle when the muscle was at 32 degrees or 17 degrees. 
really this 32 degrees was it was a breaking point. Sorry, you said you said 32 degrees Celsius, I think. Did you mean that? Yeah. So I'm not talking about the air temperature. I'm talking about the temperature of the tissue, the muscle tissue. Gotcha. So, gotcha. And sorry, for, for people who know Fahrenheit, body temperature is around 37 degrees Celsius. So 32 is a little below normal body temperature, but not a lot. 17 degrees is obviously below. And if your core got down to 17 degrees Celsius, I think that's uh, the point where you're, you're at risk of dying. You should, as a Canadian, you should probably know that by heart. I probably should. <laughs> that's just good winter weather. Um, <laughs> the other thing that we, they saw in this study was that you did have increased tearing, but only under heavy strain. So under light strain, um, the colder temperature of the muscle didn't produce greater tearing of the muscle tissue. So again, if you think about that on the bike, you can do a lot of damage if you go hard. You're, even when your muscle's cold, you're not going to do a ton of damage if you're going easier. But what was significant, again, that you pointed out, Chris, is it's 32 degrees, which is just below body temperature. That's really relevant because when you're talking about the muscles in your leg, like your hamstrings or your quads or your calves, that's considered peripheral tissue. When it's cold outside, when your body gets cold, it's going to vasoconstrict your periphery and keep the blood supply deep inside your body to protect the temperature of your core. So your core will never really change temperature very much, but peripheral muscles can actually change temperatures quite dramatically and quite rapidly. You go out in the cold, the your muscles can get down to around 20, 25 degrees Celsius. And then you're in that range of now you're going to do some damage. You could potentially do some tearing of the muscles. So that's really important to know. You really need to protect that muscle tissue. What was interesting, and so... We'll hear in a minute from uh, Dr. Stephen Chung, who uh, actually wrote a whole book on um, the effects of environmental extreme on exercise um, and on our physiology. He was involved in some nasty studies where they basically put him in a cold room for a couple hours to get his core temperature down, to get the muscle temperature down and and see the effects. So he just sat there shivering for a couple hours. It's not a lot of fun. Um, But in one of the studies where he was both a researcher and a subject, what they found was, again, your body's going to protect the core, so it's going to let the periphery, it's going to let your hands, your feet, your your leg muscles get cold first. But they found that if you warmed the core, if or if you did a better job of keeping the core warm by exercise or bundling up a lot more, that was as effective as keeping at keeping your hands warm as if you warmed wore heated gloves. So if the core is kept warm, if the body doesn't feel this huge need to protect the core, it's going to allow more blood supply to the periphery, so to your leg muscles, to your feet, to your hands, which is going to keep them warmer. So you want to bundle up when it's cold outside. And yes, you know everybody talks about you want to wear big, thick gloves and you want to have big, thick socks and booties, but you also want to do a lot to try to protect that core. Because if it's protected, it's going to allow more heat to go to the periphery. Yeah, personally, I try to err on the side of too warm rather than too cold. Because if you're too cold or you're not uh, protecting the core enough, it seems like you never get warm. And your periphery gets even colder and stays that way. Whereas the, the opposite is true. If, you're, if you can keep the core very warm through layering and things like that, if you need to vent, that's great. But if you don't have the warmth there to begin with, you're going to suffer. Yeah. 
So this has been my constant soapbox, and, and any athlete who I've coached knows that this is where I get grouchy. And I certainly soapbox that podcast a little bit on clothing. But if anybody ever asks me what differentiates amateur riders from pros, it's that when it is even just a little nippy outside, pros bundle up. They've got the head warmer on. They've got gloves on. They've got full leg warmers. They've got the jacket on, you know, even if it's 50 degrees outside. Where amateur riders, for some reason, they are they just have this fanaticism about, I don't want to overheat. It's better to underdress. And you know, I've seen times where it's below freezing out and guys are in knee warmers and it kills me. Err on the side of overdressing. If you overdress, you're a little bit uncomfortable. If you underdress, that's the point that I was trying to make with these studies, you are causing muscle tearing. You're doing damage. Before we continue with our thoughts on the science of training in the cold, let's hear from Dr. Inigo Milan, head of the CU Sports Medicine and Performance Center, who has some additional thoughts on how the cold weather affects you physiologically. Does training in the cold have a different metabolic effect? Uh, so, for example, do we burn more fat or more carbohydrates when training in the cold? Yeah, that's a good question. So training in the cold it prompts uh, an, an, an increased uh, metabolic uh, task on the body, right? So um, you start, you know, the, the metabolic rate is going to increase and you're going to be usually burning more of both fats and carbohydrates in the cold. So how does one judge how much more they need to consume given low temperatures? Is there any easy way or any easy formula for uh, knowing what to do? I don't think so. I don't think that doing that in the cold, uh, there's like a, a formula to do that. I mean, we, we can do that in the laboratory and we can see how many, for example, calories per hour an athlete consumes or grams per minute of carbohydrates or fat. And we can give a, a more, more personalized nutrition for training. But that said, that, that happens in the laboratory. Uh, when it's out there in the cold, you know, we, we might be a little bit off. But that's what I would suggest is that uh, you can start with uh, general recommendations and uh, then just play it out by what, what, what the response to the cold is. You know, if an athlete tends to bunk more than what they used to do, you know, in regular weather um, under cold conditions, that we can just recommend to really increase more the caloric intake in this athlete. And we can do that by different means. You know, we can say, okay, let's let's try to do... 20 grams per hour more of carbohydrates or, uh, you know, or 200 calories more per hour and see how it goes. That might take care of it. Maybe not. And if it's not, okay, let's try to have maybe 30 grams per hour more of carbohydrates and 250 calories more an hour, for example, right? So it's, it's about fi- finding the balance. Right. Through trial and error, it sounds like is the best, yeah. best we've got at this point. Yeah, it's starting by maybe more a scientific point that you can get from the laboratory, right? And then it's just like more trial and error outside. What about uh, damage? Um, does does training in the cold cause more damage to our bodies? And, and, and therefore, would it require more recovery time? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think that since it's more tasking on your body, it's going to require more recovery time. So uh, there's no question that five hours uh, training in the cold it's more tasking than five hours training with uh, 60 degrees. So it's going to cause more damage and therefore it's going to cause a higher need for recovery and nutrition as well, both carbohydrates and proteins. And that's another thing that, that we see that many people might get overtrained 
easier by uh, training too much in the cold. So that's what's important to watch that throughout the season. Um, I mean, throughout the winter months uh, to make sure you have proper recovery and proper nutrition. Uh, however, and, and the flip side of that and the positive side of it is like you don't have the addition usually of the competition if you're a roadie, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not going to be competing. And therefore, uh, there's nothing like the competition. There's no there's no stressor as a competition, right? It's very difficult to replicate that while training. And the competition is a high stressor. So if you don't have that in those months, you know, that, um, yeah, it's just that overtraining is not going to be like a big deal for many athletes in the winter. You know, what happens is like when they, they start competing, that's where like uh, multiple things starting to uh, come together against you. That said, you know, uh, if, if you're being stressed or, or, or that training in the winter has been tasking on you, you start building up, building up, building up. And it might show in the spring. It might not necessarily show in the winter. It might show in the spring. Okay, let's get back to a few more points that we had about the science of training in the cold. Some other things to know about the science is as you adapt to the cold, you get a blunting of sympathetic nervous system activation and an increase in parasympathetic. Uh, So basically, it's going to bring your heart rate down. So if you train by heart rate ranges, target a little lower if you're spending a lot of time out in the cold than what you would during the summer. Another thing to know about, unfortunately, doing a warm-up. So this was, again, going back to um, to that study. Doing a big warm-up doesn't really do that much to heat up your core. So really one of their conclusions was you want to protect your muscles, you have to do it with clothing, just to emphasize that point. A few other things to know about the effects of training in the cold. Uh, One is you can tend to fatigue faster because your body is now doing a double duty of trying to keep the body heated and trying to exercise. So you're going to get some shivering, you're going to get some what's called a non-shivering thermogenesis, which is just your body trying to find ways to produce more heat. In order to produce heat, it has to expend energy. So you can fatigue a little faster. And also to produce that thermogenesis, you burn a lot of, of carbohydrates. So you do actually, when you're training in the cold, need to make sure you are replenishing those carbohydrates. Because once your glycogen is depleted, so your body store of, uh, of carbohydrates is depleted, they've shown that you're more susceptible to hypothermia. And it's tough because you're bundled up, you're wearing gloves, you don't want to stop, uh, and you tend not to eat out on those cold rides when you should actually be really careful about making sure you're eating enough or you're going to fatigue yourself. Our response to the cold is is highly individual. Some people are remarkably tolerant of it. Other people really can't handle it very well. So it's important to know which you are. It does make research difficult because research is always the averages. And you have some people that get absolutely killed by the cold. You have other people who can walk out in a t-shirt when it's negative 10 out and, and feel fine. So they're, they're going to kind of all average one another out. How, mu- how much of that is, is, a, is a mental thing, do you think? Some of it is mental, but there really are people who can't tolerate it as much. The The greater surface area you have to volume, the less tolerant you are of cold and heat. So children can't handle the cold as much. And they've also shown that the elderly can't hold um, handle the cold as much. Um, men and women of adult age tend to be about the same. 
So, but you mm. you do have some variants. A, a little skinny guy with not a lot of body fat is going to have a ha- harder time in the cold and needs to bundle up more. Yeah, and then in terms of the mental aspect, I think if you know you're going to have to do this, I think you do adapt. You you embrace it. Maybe is maybe that's too strong a word, but wrapping your head around the fact that you're going to go out in these conditions does take some mental fortitude and it 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 helps to be positive for sure. Yeah, that I would agree with and that tends to be my approach. I go out in the first 10 minutes, I'm always, man, I got to turn around. I'm not going to get through an hour of this. And you just have to find ways to distract yourself. You just have to kind of accept that it feels miserable. And then it it kind of turns around. I have gone out for five-hour rides in absolutely frigid, like we're talking negative 20-degree weather. And that first hour is miserable. But if you can get through it and tolerate it, um, I've often found those last couple hours of the ride are, are actually really enjoyable and you barely notice the cold at all. That's because your brain is frozen. That's part of it. I, I still remember one ride. I went to uh, Estes Park in Colorado, which is up at 8,000 feet. It was negative 15 Fahrenheit. I knew I'd, I'd have a descent out of Estes Park, so I brought a full face mask for the descent. But by the time I got there, I'm like, I actually feel fine. Uh, you know, it feels like it's warmed up a lot, even though my garment's showing the exact same temperature. So I don't get that, but boy, this is fine. So I didn't put the face mask on rode back home and went, that wasn't so bad. Went inside, started working, and about half an hour later, I was practically on the ground ready to scream. What had happened was my face had gone completely numb. Yeah. It's that tingling sensation, that burning that you get in your fingers sometimes when it, they get too cold and then they start heating up. And that's that's actually the most painful part is the, the warming up again. And uh, you experience that on your face. Yeah, no, having that on your face isn't a lot of fun. The other one that I love when you go out and it's really cold and you come home is you take a shower and you take a really hot shower and you have hot water hitting your head. By the time it gets to your feet, it's frozen. Right. (laughs) Ah, the stories we could tell. And we will tell, in fact. Don't do anything Trevor does, especially when it comes to riding in the cold. Don't do a 3,000 vertical feet descent in negative 15 degree weather. I think most people would actually understand that. So I'm actually going to argue with that a bit because I actually am a cold wimp. So I would say I have figured out a fair number of things to allow you to to tolerate the cold, um, which we will definitely go into. And, and that's really what's going to be the theme of this podcast, which is it is all in how you prepare for the ride. You'd be amazed what temperatures you can handle and actually handle comfortably if you prepare yourself correctly. If you do not prepare yourself correctly, it can be 50 degrees out and be the most miserable ride of your life. Yeah, the, the preparation is your is your is your best friend when it comes to these circumstances and if you cross country ski or downhill ski or do other things, um you know what it's like to do activities in the cold and you can bring those principles over to to riding and and they all apply and uh preparation goes a long way in making it much more enjoyable. So Trevor, we keep talking about riding outside, but there's so many ways to uh, have enjoyable rides inside. Would you have people uh, take away from this podcast as 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 uh, pertains to the ratio of uh, time spent outside versus inside? What types of rides should they do inside versus outside? So the gist of this, and we'll talk a little bit about how to deal with the trainer later, but just my philosophy on this, I think anybody who spends 
you know, 12, 15 hours per week inside on the trainer, you're, you're hurting yourself. And I think trainers can be mentally damaging. They can really cook you mentally. I think anything over three hours on a trainer, you've hit a point where uh, you're, you're doing more damage than good. But that being said, there is a lot of good work you can do inside. What I'll say is the high-intensity stuff, you know, we talked before about it's only when you're, you're putting a high strain on the muscles that they're more susceptible to damage. So high-intensity interval-type work, that's a perfect candidate for do it inside, do it on the trainer, get it done, get off the bike. So I do all my interval work in the winter on the trainer, but it's never more than an hour and a half. The long ride, on the other hand, you know, the, the issue is... In the winter is when you want to be getting that endurance work. And doing a four or five hour ride on the trainer to me is just death. Some people can tolerate mm. it. For most people, no, I don't think it's beneficial. So that's the sort of ride where even if it's cold outside, you're better off if you can handle it, get outside and do that out on the roads. Um, and I think basically, Chris, what 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 we should be doing with the rest of the, this podcast is just giving advice on, on how you do that. Is there anything you can say to how much is too much when it comes to interval work in in these months? Obviously, everybody's season is organized differently, and they're they're hitting different points of their training blocks at different times. But maybe the natural tendency nowadays is for everybody to get on and do a swift session more often than not because it's cold outside. It's more fun. Um, they're riding with people. Comparing that to a five-hour slog through really cold temperatures and uh, hours uh, of dressing and undressing? Well, I think you're getting into one of the, the, the big debates right now, and there's certainly some people out there who are going to argue me tooth, with me tooth and nail. There is a, a real popularity to let's do a lot of interval work in the winter, and then when it gets warm outside, I'll do my endurance work. And I, I personally think why this whole concept of reverse periodization has become a big buzz phrase. We talked about reverse periodization in a podcast uh, last year, and I looked for research on it, and I only found one study that mentioned it. So I think it's kind of a popularized concept, but there really isn't a ton of science behind it. And I don't think there's a ton of people out there who are really doing it. And, and this belief that it's do lots and lots and lots of intensity in the in the winter and then do your endurance work during the season, no. Um, from the definitions I have found of reverse periodization, that's not what it is. And the unfortunate thing is, again, you're getting my opinion from what I've seen in the science, from experience, from talking to a, a lot of coaches, a lot of top-level athletes. It just doesn't work. This whole concept of go and just slam yourself hard day in, day out, all winter on the trainer to compensate for that volume and you're going to end up in the same place, it just doesn't work, which is unfortunate. I wish it did. Yeah, and the other thing is uh, maybe maybe this isn't entirely true, but you think, oh, I'll do my intervals now. When it gets nicer out, I'll do my volume, but then the racing season starts and the volume falls away and you end up doing what is essentially more uh, interval training through either racing or group right. rides or things like that. So you actually never get the base that you thought you were going to. Right. Anyway, th and this is, maybe we cover this in more depth in, in another podcast, but the, the, some of the short explanations. Um, when you are doing that base work and really hitting your aerobic systems, they are very slow to adapt. So basically high intensity work and slow endurance work 
both produce adaptations through uh, the mass regulators as PGC1-alpha, but they, they influence PGC1-alpha through different pathways. High-intensity work can produce less gains in the long run, uh, but produces its gains very rapidly. It takes about six weeks to really max that out. The slower endurance work takes months to years, but can produce much, much bigger gains. So you know, if, you're, if you're spending the winter doing a ton of high intensity, you're going to quickly max out what sort of gains you can produce. And then right when you're getting into the race season, you're going to start trying to work energy systems that take months and months and months to develop. And, and that just uh, by the time you start to see any big gains, you're, you're reaching the end of your race season. So it just unfortunately doesn't work out. You need a long time to work that base endurance system. And it takes a relatively short time to, to bring around that top end to, to race ready. That's just the way our physiology works. It just doesn't work, unfortunately, well with the weather. Dr. Stephen Chung actually wrote a whole book called Advanced Environmental Exercise Physiology. And it has a chapter on exercising in the cold. So he has a lot to say both about the effects of cold weather on our bodies and suggestions of how to train in the cold. Like me, he lives in the Great White North, so let's hear what he has to say. There is some evidence that your use of fats versus carbohydrates change a bit in the cold. And in the cold, you tend to be at any set wattage compared to being in the heat. You tend to be using a little bit more carbohydrate. And that may be a, a uh, deliberate choice by the body or it may be forced on it by the fact that you are a little bit cold and you are shivering. So if you are shivering, it primarily relies on carbohydrates. So overall, yes, you tend to use a little bit more carbohydrates in the cold compared to the heat. So you want to make sure you are fueling properly as a result. You still need to make sure if you are doing long efforts out outdoors uh, in the cold that you still are taking in fuel because you'll be using more carbohydrates. In terms of muscle damage, I would say no. If you're wearing the right amount of clothing, then your muscles themselves are really near the same temperature as if they were in, uh, in a hot environment. So I don't see it as necessarily being more damaging on your body that way. Um, any other thoughts, suggestions in terms of, uh, in terms of, uh, training in the cold? Well, I guess surprisingly the, a little bit of cold isn't going to hurt you. And the classic study on the optimal temperature, looking at the effect of different environmental temperatures on exercise performance was done by my postdoc supervisor, Ron Mon in Scotland. And it was led by Stuart Galloway. And what they did was comparing ride to exhaustion at zero degrees, 10 degrees, 20 and 30 degrees Celsius. Now, if I just asked you, you would probably guess that, well, 20 degrees is probably the optimal temperature. Which is about uh, but, 70 degrees for our Americans. Right. But actually, that's not the case. The There was almost an inverted U shape where the optimal temperature for the longest exercise was at 10 degrees. And 
zero degrees and 20 degrees had about the same impairment. And then there was a further impairment at 30 degrees. So, you know, what we think of as room temperature and yeah, this is pretty comfortable and it's actually, there's already heat stress. So, so in a sense, don't fear the cold, but also be aware of it and, and uh, dress appropriately. Does training in cold weather have any sort of effects on your body that you wouldn't experience in other weather? And and especially, is there anything you should be careful and aware of? I generally think of training when it's cold as more training and less heat rather than something completely different from that. Uh, The main thing is you are losing a lot more heat to the environment because the temperature around you is so much colder than your body. The main challenge, I think, for most people is the wind chill is, uh, and also their fingers and their feet. I know personally my hands hate being in the cold, and if my hands are cold, then uh, the rest of me just goes south with it. So... I tend to wear really thick gloves, much thicker than what my uh, club mates would be on any winter ride. And I find that's really critical. I find you still lose a lot of heat and water through your breathing because you're breathing in very cold and dry air and your lungs can't handle it. So your body is adding heat, adding water, and then it's breathing it back out. And so you're losing a lot of heat lot of water so you still have to make sure you are aware of hydration and you have to be careful about about if you have exercise induced asthma uh, a lot of times breathing cold air can be a trigger for it so you need to keep that in mind too whether you you wear a uh, a buff or a um, or a scarf to cover over your mouth so that you're slowing down the breathing a little bit, allowing you to humidify that air a bit more. I find that is really useful. And the other challenge with training in the cold is there's no more, the leaves have fallen. So a lot of times if you are out on the open road, you are facing a lot more wind than usual because there's no real tree cover or anything like that. So this is a great time to get off the road and to be, you know, if you have a fat bike to be hitting the trails and, uh, or studded tires because you're in the woods a little bit more, there's not as much wind kind of hitting you. So you're not going to be as cold. The other question is, do you want to do your intervals indoors on the trainer and then do kind of long steady rides in the outside in the cold? Or do you want to do the reverse, do your longer rides on the trainer and then do hard intervals in the in the outs, outdoors. I guess it really somewhat depends on the location. If it's safe, first of all, to to be do, going at fast speeds. If I can just be doing a short, hard ride you know, outdoors, I would probably prefer doing that. But then there's also a place for, again, if you have a fat bike and you're just going out with your buddies for a few hours of casual riding in the woods, that can be a great way to have endurance rides too. All right, let's get back to our suggestions. So that brings us to getting outside because eventually it has to happen unless you really are one of those people that can tolerate the the really long rides on the trainer inside. And I don't know too many people that can. 
let's move on to talking about the equipment, the, the uh, methods to the madness of riding outside when it gets really cold. When you're dealing with equipment and you're getting yourself ready for that ride, here's the key thing to remember. Most of what cools you down is wind chill. Um, as cold as it is outside, you know, actually, believe it or not, zero degrees Fahrenheit, if you're bundled up, is really manageable until you're going 20 miles an hour. And I don't have the tables in front of me, but what that brings the perceptual temperature down to uh, is just numbers you don't want to hear. So what that means is when you are out training on a cold day, speed is your enemy. The slower you can go and put out the same wattage, the happier you're going to be. So don't take your race bike out in the winter. As a matter of fact, I always recommend to people, if you have it in the budget, have a winter bike and slow that bike down. Put fenders on it. Uh, I use a cross bike on really cold days. I, I ride the knobby tires and bring the tire pressure down. So all this just slows the bike. Um, I, I have several athletes up in Toronto who own fat tire bikes. And on the really cold days, they go out, they're putting out a, some pretty good power, and, and they're going nine miles an hour. Uh, and they're actually quite comfortable. So basically, the winter bike, you want it to be slow, you want it to be heavy, you want it to be crappy because there's salt and junk on the road. You don't want any expensive gear on it. You want it to be bomb-proof, and you want it to be safe. So also make sure you have lights on it because you never know when the weather is going to get bad and daylight isn't as long in the winter. Again, I talked about put thick tires on. If you are riding smooth tires like regular road tires, don't get the really expensive $100 race tires. Get the super thick $10 garden hose tires that can handle anything. <laughs> and then on top of that, get some Mr. Tuffies or something like Mr. Tuffies and put them inside the tire. This is just a liner that goes inside. I know other people that take just an old tire, cut the top part off of it, and put it inside as a liner. Basically, you want to make sure that that tire is both slow and will never get a flat. You don't want to, yeah, you don't want to be standing on the side of the road changing a tire or a tube out when it's that cold. Your fingers might not even work, so it might be extremely hard for you to change the tube out. Mr. Tuffies are, are, are a good thing. Um, there are many modern tires, uh, training tires out there with that are bomb-proof without the need for Mr. Tuffies. Um, certainly, a lot of people are probably running tubeless setups. Um, in that case, just lowering the pressure is a good thing. More traction on slicker surfaces, um, slowing you down a bit, a little more, more comfortable for the long haul. And honestly, riding mountain bikes and cross bikes in the woods where Maybe you're protected from winds, you're going slower. You just have to be cognizant of the, the powers that you're putting out so you're not essentially turning it into a high-intensity ride by crushing it up the little inclines or accelerating up uh, little hills as you would on some single track. And if it's a snowy place, fat tire bikes are, in my opinion, a bit silly unless there's a lot of snow and then they turn into really fun machines to carve on snowy trails and explore places that you wouldn't otherwise explore. But the trick here is be happy going slow. When it is cold outside, the slower you are going, the warmer you are going to be. The other strong suggestion I have if you are even doing part of your time outside in the winter, so daylight is an issue in the winter, uh, just remember that 
you it's easy to get stuck in the dark. And when you if there's snow on the sides of the road, you're dealing with bad conditions. That's not when you want to be outside in the dark with cars and not be visible. So if you are keeping a winter bike or even if you're using your race bike in the winter, put lights on it and just leave them on. So if you have that day where you get caught outside, you have a good tail light that you can turn on. In terms of clothing, we've touched upon a, a few things here, but uh, we won't get into get into too much more detail. Trevor and his former co-host Kaylee Fretz recorded episode seven on dressing warmly. So check out that podcast for all the tips and tricks on dressing warmly for your winter rides. Yeah, for a few episodes now, you've been hearing two science geeks try to banter about something called Health IQ. And this is where you discover that we are not professional disc jockeys. We just play them on Fast Talk. But this Health IQ product, we actually think this is a really cool thing. And it's why we've said that we'll bring it on to Fast Talk, because this actually differentiates people like you who are active. You ride your bikes, you go for runs, you do a lot of sports, and you are generally healthier people. So for you, they offer life insurance at a cheaper rate. It's really easy, too. You just go over to www.healthiq.com slash fasttalk, upload or submit race results, screen grabs of Strava, Map My Run account, any other way that you can show that you're active and healthy, and you get a better quote. It's as simple as that. Let's go back to something you said earlier in the podcast about the sort of the extra caloric expenditure of riding in the cold. What do you mean specifically there? And what should people be eating on rides that is convenient and, and packs the calories that they want during rides like this? So I admit I've never found a, a perfect solution to this, but what we said earlier in the podcast is uh, you can burn more carbohydrates in the cold because your body's trying to keep itself warm and it's going to upregulate what's called thermogenesis, which is ways of producing heat, which require expending energy. So you can burn through your body's carbohydrate stores a little bit quicker when you're, you're training in the cold. So making sure you are getting sufficient carbohydrates when you're out on these cold weather rides is important. And it's tough because nobody wants to take a glove off and reach for food. So whatever food you have, A, be careful about picking something that can freeze. Uh, trying to eat a cliff bar when it's zero degrees out is tough. Try to have something that's easy to access. So frankly, when I'm out in a five-hour ride in really cold weather, I pack a bunch of candy in my pockets because it doesn't freeze. You can chew it. Uh, so for example, something like Swedish fish. And it, <laughs> Always can, with the Swedish fish. <laughs> there are so many uses for Swedish fish when it comes to a bike ride. Uh, <laughs> but they are great on a cold weather day or something like that, some sort of kind of gummy candy. Easy to reach, easy to relatively easy to chew easy to get out of your pockets, and you're going to replenish those, those carbohydrates. So be careful. Yeah, about it's, hard, it's, hard to fit the in, it's hard to fit the entire Cliff Bar in your mouth to try to melt it before biting into it. So you can cut them before you go out onto the ride so they're smaller so that you can pop them in a little piece of it into your mouth, warm it up so that it is something you can chew and digest, but that takes some forethought. Um, if you have a jacket with internal pockets – 
but something where it's get, getting a little bit of your body warmth to, to keep it from freezing, that's a, a great option if you have that. But yeah, it's tricky to find um, foods that won't freeze. I tend to eat more what you would maybe call regular food on winter rides, so less of the the true performance-oriented nutrition products, but just regular food that is less prone to freezing and it's not as big a deal in terms of digestion and being easy on the stomach when you're riding slower and longer. I think you hit the two operative things. When you're picking your food, pick food that doesn't freeze or you can still eat if it does freeze a little bit. And anything that you can do beforehand when you're sitting inside in your nice warm kitchen to prepare the food, do that. So as you said, if you're cutting it into small pieces so that it's easier to reach and get in your mouth, better to do that when you're inside than when you're sitting outside in the freezing cold trying to bite off a piece of this bar. Yeah, don't break your teeth. <laughs> don't do that either. So another way to obviously get the calories is with drink mixes, but now we have a, a really big issue of water bottles freeze. One tip that I have for you that took me a little bit to figure out is take two water bottles with you, fill one up, leave the other empty. So the one that's full, that's the one you drink at the start of the ride, hopefully get through before it's frozen. Then when you're halfway through the ride, you stop at a gas station and you get some sort of nice warm liquid and you have some fluid for the rest of the ride. If you fill up both water bottles at the start of the ride, by the time you get to the second one, it is a popsicle. There are also bottles that have a bit of insulation to them that obviously in the summer, they're meant to keep them cool for longer. And in the winter, they're meant to keep them from freezing. I don't personally have much experience with them. Trevor, do you have any experience with them? They, they work to a degree, but they're not, a, they're not a panacea by any stretch of the imagination. So this is actually a good time to bring in some tips from Kiel Reinen, who lives, grew up somewhere pretty rainy and cold. Uh, and he actually had a, a really creative solution for dealing with frozen water bottles. So let's hear from him. Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? <laughs> Absolutely. We can bleep. It's hard to fuck up. <laughs> That's my recommendation. So I think uh, I think training in the in the cold, there's a threshold. I think dressing appropriately, you can you can kind of fudge that that limit a little bit uh, when it's when it's that cold out because you really probably do burn a bit more and because it's cold you're less likely to eat or drink and you know maybe that is is really the bigger problem it's it's less physiological or it's less of a physio physiological reaction to the cold than it is a physiological reaction to the fact that you're not eating and drinking because of the cold but i think there's definitely a tendency to talk about cold like it's like it's just this big kind of limiting factor for, for a lot of people. And I, I think there is, even if, it, if it's just mental, there's definitely a lot of adaption that can happen. Like I notice when I go away to train camp for a week in Sicily and come back home, it feels colder than when I left. And that's not really true. Like it, I just got soft because I was in warmer weather for a week. So, uh, you know, I don't know if there's some physiological stuff that happens underneath there to, to kind of help get you more efficient in the in the colder weather or if it's just mental but but definitely i notice a change if i leave colder weather and go to warmer weather and come back the other thing i do think is when i when i train in colder weather regularly 
my body does does some different things. Like I, I definitely store a little bit more fat, but I also feel more robust. So I, I feel more durable. Uh, it's kind of a trade off. And uh, cold weather is not the worst thing in the world. A little rain never hurt anybody. Snow maybe, ice maybe <laughs> if you crash. <laughs> but uh, I, it's got to be pretty pretty cold if I'm not gonna go outside. I did a ride with Howes in Colorado when I was there for a couple of days before camp. And I think the computer was reading a few degrees Celsius below zero. And, um, we kind of, we just got talking and kept climbing and sort of forgot what we were doing. And we got up to eight and a half thousand feet or something before we realized that it was going to be pretty cold on the way down. And it was cold, but you know, you get home, get warm, get a good you know, hot meal in you and, it's uh, builds character at least, but I, I do think we do ourselves a disservice if we just in, avoid cold weather entirely. It's it, it's part of the racing. Like I know, you know, when it's wet and raining and close to freezing out here, and I'm out riding, I always remind myself that you might as well train in it because you're gonna have to race in it at some point. And if you, you know, all you do is train in seven degrees and sun, you're just your body's not gonna be ready for it when when it's time to race in it. So what are some of your suggestions for uh, dealing with put a little whiskey in, the cold? in your <laughs> put a little whiskey in your water bottles that helps them from freezing keeps you warm I do believe in keeping the core warm you know I think there's definitely some temperatures where it's really hard to keep your extremities toasty and so I usually default to just making sure my my chest and, and core are are nice and and warm and kind of rely on that I also I also use the good old if you're cold, ride harder theory. Uh, that seems to, to work, especially around here. You know, it also depends on the terrain. Like I know in Boulder, even when the temperatures were warmer, I would get a lot colder because you have, you know, half hour long descents and you're, you know, you're not exercising at that point and you're just going down with a wind chill of negative 20. That's, that's hard to stay warm here. The downhills are 30 seconds. So you can really keep a nice tempo to stay warm if you need to. So on, on the really cold days, actually stick to the flatter roots so you can just keep pedaling. Yeah, yeah. Facial hair helps too. Long hair also. Big fan of uh, using hair like a hat. You got it. Now what about if you have a, a bigger volume week and it's cold and snowy outside and it's looking like you're not going to be able to, to ride outside? Do you adjust the week or do you sit on the trainer? Yeah, or what do yeah. You do? I, I don't like to fight Mother Earth. She's a lot more powerful than we are. So uh, let her have her day. And if it's that bad out, sitting on the trainer for six hours, that that's crazy. I mean, maybe when I was 18, but I'm not that dumb anymore. You know, everybody does this at a high level, it's a little OCD and gets gets their work in. But you, you got to be reasonable, too. Um, if, if you see it, it's a really nice week next week and it's miserable this week, just switch it up you're still going to get it in one way or the other. Okay. Any other uh, cold weather advice? I had a cross bike. I basically train most of the winter on, on a cross bike with like, if you're lazy about pumping up your tires too, there's another mile an hour you lose. And uh, when you're going slower, you stay warmer. So I, I definitely like to ride a, a slower bike. So just three other tips that I've learned from experience. One is on a really cold day, as, as masochistic as this sounds, don't go inside. Stay outside for the entire ride because that first 30 to 60 minutes of the ride is the most miserable part. 
I find after about 45 minutes to an hour, your body starts to adjust. You stop noticing the cold as much. And, and the ride, I'm not going to say is pleasant, but it's more enjoyable. If you go inside and warm up, then you have to go through that unpleasant hour again. So get through that unpleasant hour to where you're not noticing the cold as much and then just stay outside. Don't go inside until you are done. The second strong recommendation is pick your routes where you are always near civilization. Because if it is freezing outside and you get that flat tire and something goes wrong with your bike, your hands might be too cold to actually do something about it. So you need to be able to get to a gas station or somewhere where you can get inside. And the last suggestion, uh, on a really cold day, avoid descending. Stick to the flatter routes. I frankly would rather be on a flat route when it's zero degrees Fahrenheit out than do a big 40-minute mountain descent when it's 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so we've talked about riding outside. We've told people a bit about how to do it in a more comfortable and safe fashion, but there are definitely people out there that may not have the time or the desire, or it's just simply way too cold to be outside in a safe way. So we need to talk about that element of this type of winter training. What can people do, or what are the alternatives for those that can't get outside? Boy, did we pick the right week to answer this question, because I have five athletes in Toronto who are all on vacation, wanted to do a big training week this week, and it has been snowing and absolutely frigid every day. So most of them are not venturing outside. A few did. So we have had to come up with the alternatives, and there are options. Obviously, nothing beats that good, steady, four or five hour ride outside. So everything we're, we're talking about here isn't going to produce as, as good a gain, but we're trying to get as close as we can. You know, first of all, we talked earlier, interval work is great on a trainer. I don't think you're, you're having any loss uh, of quality um, workout by being on the trainer. So we're not really talking about that. What we're talking about is, is figuring out how to get that endurance work. And, and there are different options. One is the, the half and half day, where either you venture outside and, and deal with the cold for two, two and a half hours, and then you come home and finish it out on the trainer so you're not spending four hours on the trainer. That makes the trainer a little more manageable and you don't have to suffer as long in the cold. Likewise, if it's snowy and nasty outside, and we're talking about endurance work, a lot of what you're trying to train is what's called your central conditioning, which is less sports-specific. So go snowshoe, go cross-country ski for a couple hours, and then the same thing. Come home, get on the trainer, get another hour or two in, and you get your four-hour workout in a much more enjoyable way. You know, I think about uh, Dr. Pruitt. You know, he was a, a high-level cyclist, but he loved to ski in the winter. He would go and do his cross-country skiing, and then he would come home and just do 30 minutes on the, 30, 40 minutes on the trainer, just to keep that neuromuscular side, to remind himself, his body, what the, uh, the bike felt like. And he talked about one winter where that's all he did. He hadn't done a ride outside all winter. And then he had a big race, I think it was at the end of March, beginning of April, and he performed really well without having done a ride over an hour outside. So Trevor, we've talked a lot about riding outside, and I know in this day and age, when there are so many options for riding inside with, with Zwift, with Be Cool, with the other products, the other online systems where you can engage with others, ride with others, and frankly, push yourself with others, how do you balance that? What is too much when it comes to 
training on a trainer in your basement in the winter. So this reminds me of the whole, uh, there, there's probably, it's probably an urban legend about Eddie Merckx that he used to have a trainer in his basement facing a brick wall and he would go down and do six hour trainer rides staring at the brick wall to make himself mentally tough. That's really cool for Eddie Merckx. I don't suggest that for anybody else. My personal feeling about trainers is I do think all these these tools, and let's talk about them in a second, like like Zwift and trainer studios, um, make it much more enjoyable. Uh, but I personally will never give an athlete a workout over three hours on a trainer. And even that I try to be somewhat selective with. Uh, you know, it might be we could probably do a whole podcast on trainers, uh, the pros and cons of them. The, the big pro of trainers is it gives you a lot of control. Especially if you live in a city, if you need to go out and let's say do five, 10 minute intervals, that's really hard to do with any sort of quality in a city where you can do it on a trainer. So there are benefits to the trainer. But when it comes to the endurance ride, again, I think it is mentally draining. And there is definitely a point where that mental damage is not worth the, the gains. Another thing, and I won't go deep into the science here, but a trainer is different. So when you are out on the road, the wheels determine your inertia. You see these big wide wheels uh, or big circumference wheels. When you're on a trainer, inertia is determined by the flywheel of the trainer, which is much, much smaller. So you have far less inertia on the trainer and your body is aware of that. So your muscle firing patterns are a little different. It is a little more fatiguing on you. And I personally believe it's more fatiguing but without any greater gains. So the the cost benefit of the trainer is not as good as being out on the road, which is part of why if I can be outside, I will be outside. So just bear that in mind. I, I know a lot of, or I've seen a lot of really committed athletes who their coach gives them 14 hours of training one week and it's miserable conditions. And they just go, I got to show my dedication. And they hop on the trainer for 14 hours and they burn themselves out. Be careful about that. You can't do the same thing inside that you can do outside. So when it comes to the endurance ride, if it just looks like I've got a couple of weeks with my athletes where they can't get a good ride in outside, I will look for alternatives like doing the half and halves, get outside for part of it, do part of it on the trainer. But if they are just stuck on the trainer, what I like to do, which again, I don't think is as good as a steady endurance ride, but we're not, we're not looking for as good. We're looking for next best. And I think a two and a half, three hour ride, most of it zone one, zone two, and then throw in two 20, 25 minute intervals at more of a sweet spot intensity is kind of the poor man's endurance ride. I will also kind of finish this by saying, I do think some of these new tools that are out are absolutely fantastic. So uh, up in Toronto, we have a lot of these trainer classes where they just have a studio set up with trainers. Um, and athletes will all get together in the morning or in the afternoons and, and train together. I think that social aspect helps mentally. Uh, I think those are great, and, and they're available most places. Things like Zwift, Sufferfest, uh, I think make it a lot more enjoyable. Uh, and it's only because of these things that I'll even now recommend going up to a three-hour ride. What's the danger with them in terms of the uh, tendency for people to ride too intensely because it's a competition in a sense? So I'm not going to give any names here, but I have a friend who knows uh, my opinion about always doing intensity in the winter. And for some reason, we keep getting on Zwift at the same time. And every time I get on, he is in a training race on Zwift. 
And so I will just kind of give him a thumbs up just to let him know I'm there. And five minutes later, he's off Swift. <laughs> so you do have to be careful. Uh, I will quite often, even when I'm using Zwift, I will still use, I, I do have a, a trainer that can control wattage. I will use the controller for the trainer and program in my workout to avoid that temptation to race people. Uh, basically, I have no control over the power. So I will still say, even when you get on Zwift, sometimes hopping in that training race, like once a week, it can be a lot of fun. When you are doing intervals on Zwift, keep it under control. Avoid that temptation to race people. Do, do the intervals right. I had the opportunity a few years ago to interview three-time national cyclocross champion Tim Johnson about riding on the trainer. Being from Massachusetts, which gets pretty cold and snowy in the winter, he knows a lot about the ins and outs of the trainer. I think it, the times when people just sit on a trainer and they don't really do anything, there's not really much effort. There's not really much speed. That That's kind of a waste. Sometimes I think it's a waste when it happens a lot. I've seen it throughout, throughout my career that I know people that, that get into the sport and they take it, you know, full gas, and they will do three, four, five hours on the trainer on some random winter or spring day, and they are just, they are literally emptying out any kind of motivation in huge buckets and throwing it out the throwing it out the window. So that same person in July or August or September is, you know, has basically quit the sport, and it's like. That to me is a waste. You know, you start to do manageable pieces of a workout or fitness, but I think anytime I've seen people do those kind of, I think I'd probably call them panic workouts, it's a sign that something else isn't going right. They're like, their expectations are completely off. Maybe they're trying to prove themselves to someone else or to themselves, whatever it is. But those are the kind of people you want to grab by the by the hand and kind of walk them off of the trainer and say, no, I'm sorry, but this isn't good for you right now. You shouldn't be doing this. So you're not a fan of, you know, somebody's in a wintry area and they really can't get out on the road. You're not a big fan of doing 15 hours a week on the trainer. It sounds like you're saying more do the specific interval type work on the trainer where it's great, but don't do the, the big volume. Well, I, you know, if you don't have a life or a family or a job and you want to, you want to just empty yourself out on your trainer. I mean, by all means, go for it. But if you do have the ability to do specific work and then have the ability to to do other things, like if it is jogging or skiing or, or Nordic skiing or hiking or, or anything else that's active, then you have, then you have a chance of having a social life and, or, you know, some kind of a, a I don't know, like a reserve of your energy for later. Got a couple athletes in uh, Canada, and I, I give them intervals on the trainer, but I tell them I'd rather see them out in cross-country skis and doing five hours on the... Oh, good. Awesome. Yeah, no, totally. And and this is, I mean, I'm I'm a lifelong cyclist, and I've been introduced through to skiing and, and running through my life over the years, but it certainly hasn't been all at once. I mean, it's a it's a learning process, but I think... The, the tips and tricks from people that have that have been in this for a long time are more useful than the people who are like, well, my my power to weight went up 
you know, 0.5% because I haven't eaten and I've done 15 training workouts this week, you know, and it's, oh, by the way, it's March, you know, that's, I think that's the horse shit that you need to kind of separate from. Tim certainly doesn't mince his words about the trainer. Let's finish up with Chris and I giving our final suggestions. We've talked about a lot today. I think it's worth going back and giving our own top three most important tips of the podcast at this time. So why don't you why don't you start? So I think my three are kind of more some of the the broader themes or, or principles to remember when dealing with cold weather. One is to remember that it can be remarkably cold out and you can still get a somewhat enjoyable workout. It all comes down to the preparation. So you underdress, you have the wrong bike, uh, you don't bring the right type of food, and it's going to be miserable. You you dress appropriately, you have a good winter bike, and you'd be surprised what you can tolerate. The second one, which is a – this won't be the last time you're going to hear this from me, is always remember – When you overdress, you're a little uncomfortable. When you underdress, you are doing damage. Always err on the side, especially on cold days, of overdressing. And I would say my final point is we need that endurance work. This belief that you can just do high intensity to compensate in the winter and you're going to end up at the same place when you get to the race season – I just don't buy it, and I don't see it in the research. So if you want to be at your best, you have to get that endurance work. But what we tried to present here is ways of getting that dealing with cold weather, which can either be really bundling up and just going outside and gritting your teeth, or doing things like half and halves, get outside for part of it, be inside for part of it. Or if you're inside, alternative workouts that aren't as good, but are going to get you most of the way there. I'm a, I'm a, yeah, I'm a little less of a masochist, I would say, than you, Trevor. I usually, and I also wrap up my cyclocross season around this time of year. So for me, my winter starts with taking some time off, which is good, but I get back into it and I like to keep things fun. So I'm not necessarily going to get on the road bike right away. I will mix it up and try to get on the mountain bike more. Uh, stick to the cross bike, stick to trails where things are naturally going to be less cold because the wind chill factor is less severe. So that would be one of the things that I would emphasize is do things to stay slow because um, speed in this sense is your enemy in that the wind chill can make a cold ride a just miserable ride if you're not well prepared, like Trevor said. Another one that I would emphasize is a good one that came from our friend Keel. You know, there's nothing worse than getting out on a long ride and you don't really turn to the bottle, uh, the water bottle that is, all that often. But when you do and you reach down and it's just a block of ice, it's terrible. So the trick of adding a little bit of your favorite uh, booze, shall we say, is a good one. Don't overdo it, obviously. I but, love it. Uh, you actually went there. <laughs> that hey, is one of your top three pieces of advice. Become no, an alcoholic in the I, winter. I, I, you gave it to you. Pitched it to me. I, I couldn't think of anything else. So um, don't use it. Don't use it. No, if you're drunk see. enough, you, you won't notice the cold. No, we're using that. <laughs> hmm. Secondly, I would say, remember the no, mental no, no. Thirdly, aspect. Thirdly. Thirdly. Secondly, I would say, remember the mental aspect. 
First of all, it may be cold outside. It may seem like you're going to freeze. If you're well prepared, that's great. But also go into it with a bit of positivity and things will seem better than they might otherwise seem if you're just sort of cranky about it and grouchy about it and just not into it. It's going to be a lot easier to turn things around if you stay positive and enjoy it. If you're training for a big race six months into the future, just know that what you're, the work that you're doing now in the winter is all a part of preparing for that race. Keep that in mind and that'll help you get through all those miles. Third, I would say a little bit of uh, investment in the right equipment is a good thing. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about the bike. I think, like Trevor said, but your em emphasis on get the crappiest bike you can for your winter bike, that's great. I, I, I would almost agree with that. I mean, if you, if you don't have that as an option, you don't need that. And certainly, you know, a nice bike for winter rides, nobody should fault you for having such things. But I'd also say that investing in a little bit of the right clothing, the right base layer, some nice gloves, they're going to go a really long way in making all of these winter rides a lot more enjoyable. You don't have to go out there to suffer. That's really not the point. And that's not necessarily going to make you stronger or tougher or a better cyclist. Don't be stupid and invest in the right equipment for the job. Certainly, Trevor and I have some good experience, and we've hopefully shared some things that uh, you've learned from, but I bet there are a lot of listeners out there that have plenty of other tricks and tips, and we'd love to hear from you. We always love to hear feedback from our listeners. Send us a note, tweet us, share it on Facebook when the episode goes live, or post a comment on SoundCloud when you see this episode, and we'll uh, be sure to collect all of those tips and share them back with all of our other listeners. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. While you're there, check out our sister podcast, The Velo News Podcast, which covers news about the week in cycling. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash velonews and on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Fast Talk is a joint production between VeloNews and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed in Fast Talk are those of the individual. For Chris Case, Dr. Stephen Chung, Dr. Inigo San Milan, Tim Johnson, and Keel Reinen, I'm Trevor Connor. Thanks for listening.